0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. If you're visiting with us today, we're very glad you're here. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 7. For those of you who are new with us today, we are really in the middle of a series of sermons through the book of Genesis, and we've gotten to the point, chapter 7 and 8 of the flood. Last week, Pastor Menzel preached on chapter 6 and talked to us about the wrath of God and the righteousness of Noah, and today we come to the actual account of the flood itself. And so we're going to be looking at both chapters, chapters 7 and chapter 8 this morning. Give your attention to it as I read it to you. Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. And the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and all, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove. But she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This is the word of the Lord. Do you believe this? I know it's easy to say when you're sitting here among us, but do you really believe this? Do you really believe every detail of this? Because many, many, many people who profess to be Christians do not, in fact, believe this. Many professing Christians, if you really push them, assume this is just a story, this is just a myth, maybe just a parable with some good lessons for us. But it didn't really happen. Others want to say that this flood was just local. In other words, it just happened in the place where Noah was. Not the whole world, just the place where Noah lived. Well, what about you? What do you believe about the flood? The whole world pushes you and pressures you to dismiss this historical account of the flood and this is a historical account did you notice when we read this how many times it gave you the date literally the date and the such and such year and the such and such month on the such and such day over and over and over again this is what it says this is a historical account but the christian world not just the pagan world, the Christian world pushes us to deny this or to see this as local, not, not, not global, or just to dismiss it altogether. There is no one in this room, including me, who is immune to the pressure to dismiss this or to explain it away, or to minimize it. None of us are immune to this. Don't be so quick to say yes when I ask you if you believe it. The whole Christian world is pushing us away from a faithful understanding of this passage. For example, in past sermons from the book of Genesis, Pastor Bailey has mentioned to you, to us, this organization, it's a Christian organization called BioLagos. Do you remember him mentioning that? BioLagos is an organization that claims to, here's a quote from their website, claims to quote, embrace the historical Christian faith, upholding the authority and inspiration of the Bible. Amen? We uphold the authority and inspiration of the Bible, Well, that's great. Here's what they go on to say. They say, quote, we believe that God created the universe, the earth, and all life, amen, over billions of years, They go on to say, quote, We believe that the diversity and interrelation of all life on earth are best explained by the God-ordained process of evolution with common descent. Now, these are people who claim to be evangelical, Bible-believing, conservative Christians. You understand this. They go on to talk about the fact that they believe in Jesus and the incarnation, and the atonement, and what's wrong with this? These are self-proclaimed, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, but they embrace evolution as God's means of creation, which also means that they embrace death as God's means of creation, you understand, because death is the engine of evolution. You don't have evolution without death as the machine that pushes the whole thing forward, which is why there's this mindset very common among Bible-believing Christians today, growing and growing in popularity, that death is a good thing. Death is a blessing. Death is a necessary thing that God used from the beginning. And that's evil. And it denies Scripture. Now, what does Bio Logos teach about this passage I just read to you? Genesis 7 and 8. Well, here's the opening paragraph from their article called How Should We Interpret the Genesis Flood Account? Okay, so how should we think about this passage we just read? Well, they're going to tell us. Listen very carefully. Here's what they say. Just one paragraph. They say this. The Genesis flood of Genesis 6 to 9 tells a fascinating story. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. It's just fascinating story. Sometimes referred to as Noah and the ark, that's what it's referred to as in our little, little children's Bible, Bible stories, Noah and the Ark. They don't say all that. They do say sometimes referred to as Noah and the Ark. What else would you call it? I'm not sure. Sometimes referred to as Noah and the Ark, it is a common fundamentalist claim that the biblical flood must have been a worldwide one. Now, we all know what fundamentalists are, right? Fundamentalists blow things up. Or something, you know. Knuckles drag or something. It's a common fundamentalist claim that the biblical flood must have been a worldwide one, or else scripture as a whole is undermined. So fundamentalists claim that if you don't believe the flood account as it's presented to us, then the whole Bible is undermined. Uh, Yep. We'll get to that in a minute. From this point of view, the fundamentalist point of view, the flood is often used in an attempt to account for the geologic column, that's all the, the rocks and the And the fossils and all of that. So, the flood is used, if you're a fundamentalist, to account for the fossils and the stuff in the ground, which is otherwise seen by smart people as evidence of a very old earth. However, a balanced interpretation of Scripture, right? What are we balancing? A balanced interpretation of Scripture does not force the reader to believe that the flood was a worldwide phenomenon. No, no, no. The scientific and historical evidence summarized below in this article supports the idea that the flood was indeed catastrophic, but that it was local, recent, and limited in scope. Beyond its place in history, which is debatable, my words, beyond its place in history. The Genesis flood is also a part of the greater narrative of the Bible. It highlights theological points concerning human depravity, faith, obedience, divine judgment, grace, and mercy. It's a nice story that has some morals to it. I mean, that's the real point, right? That's what they say. Now, listen, I'll bet you a dollar if many of us came across this article, came across this statement, other than sitting here, other than me reading it to you and um, giving the interpretation, (laughs) right? You would see this as plausible. You would. None of us are immune to it. It sounds so good. Many, many people think that the flood is just a story, just a narrative, a fascinating story. It's just too difficult for us to believe it, though. It's, it's too hard for us modern people to believe in such fantastic, outrageous, primitive stories, right? This is, this is the kind of thing that's great for children's story time, It's great for fantasy movies, you know, with Russell Crowe and Rock Monsters, wherever in the world those things came from, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, good for you. (laughs) Only one person in the first service admitted to watching that movie. I won't ask you. I haven't, because it's not free on Netflix. That's the only reason, really, I guess. (laughs) I'm not going to pay for it. But is it history? No. We've grown up past that. Well, what are the difficulties of the flood? The so-called difficulties that you and I and everyone around us have that makes us want to say this isn't... makes us want to minimize it, makes us want to dismiss it, makes us want to contain it. What are the difficulties? Well... What about all the animals? How could one man possibly collect pairs, in some cases multiple pairs, right, of all the animals in the world? That just doesn't make sense. How could one man have done that? Well, he didn't. He didn't. God brought them to him. That's what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 6 from last week. God said to Noah, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. He didn't have to go looking for them. God brought them to him. Now, come on, is that a difficult thing for God to do? He causes animals to fly around the world for crying out loud, and no one understands how. Can God bring animals to Noah? Of course he can. As a matter of fact, this is the kind of thing God's already done. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, it says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and of every, every bird of the sky, and what? Brought them to the man so that he would name them. God's good at bringing animals to men. Not a big deal. Okay, well, fine. What about the technology required to build the ark? People back then were, you know, they were... Well, they were, you know, primitive. Right? I mean, rocks and sticks and stuff. Caves, even, maybe. Primitive. There's a no way that they could have had the technological advancement to build such a thing. Well, that's just wrong. This book, Genesis chapter 4, tells us that that whole way of thinking about ancient man is crazy. Do you remember Lamech chapter 4? talks about Lamech. Lamech is one of these characters that comes up real early on. He took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah. The name of the other, Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. What is that talking about? animal husbandry. He wasn't a hunter-gatherer. He was a shepherd, right? His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who what? Play the saxophone. No, wait. Yeah. The guitar and the saxophone, the lyre and the pipe. Well, that's kind of advanced. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. They're not hacking bits of rock and beating things with them, they're just not. These men are advanced. As a matter of fact, ancient men built really big stuff, right? Like the pyramids. Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) Thank you very much for bringing that up. Think about this thing. Think about the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. It's one of the many examples of crazy, crazy things that the ancients built. It's estimated to have around 2,300,000 stone blocks 2,300,000 stone blocks weighing from between 2 to 30 tons, some of them up to 50 tons. The engineers among you actually understand what that might mean. The base of the pyramid, right? the footprint, 592,000 square feet, bigger than my house. By a little bit. There used to be stones covering the pyramid. When we see the pyramid now, we see the pictures, it looks all rough and crumbly and, right? There used to be stones covering this. We know from historical accounts and from stuff we find there, right? Stones that were highly polished limestone. There were 144,000 of those. Those. Highly polished, flat, to an accuracy of one one-hundredth of an inch. Again, you engineers, right? They each weighed about 15 tons. Now, who built that thing? How? Well, men built it. Ancient men built that thing. As far as we know, men without bulldozers and cranes built it although I wouldn't put it past them, right? I mean, come on. People today would rather believe, what? That aliens from space built that thing. That makes more sense to us. That's much more plausible to us than ancient men built it because we all know that ancient men are knuckle-draggers. They're idiots. Well, there it is. There it is. Ancient men could build really big stuff, okay? Bottom line. Without help from aliens. <laughs> it's amazing how many people would rather believe that than that, no, they just, they built it. And they were smarter than us because we can't figure out how in the world they did it. And we, we can't stand that thought. So it must have been aliens. (laughs) Well, what about the time it would take to build such a huge boat? Well, Genesis 5.22, when we first meet Noah, it says Noah was 500 years old. Right? And then in Genesis 7.6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Evidently, he had 100 years to build this thing. You can build a lot in 100 years, even if you only have your sons helping you. Why? Why was that funny? <laughs> he probably hired people to. I don't know. Well, yeah, but Noah wasn't a shipbuilder. How, how would he know how to do such a thing, build such a ship? That's crazy. Well, the ark had a very good designer. It was God himself. Remember, chapter 6, 14 to 16, he says this. God says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. May that, make, that makes it waterproof, right? This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it You shall make it with a lower second and third decks. This is God giving him the blueprint. He doesn't have to know how to make a boat. God tells him how to make a boat. If God can make the world, can't he make a boat? Or at least tell Noah how to do it. Okay, fine, but where did all the water come from? I mean, come on. All the water, where did the water come from? Well, the Bible says that it came from both the sky and from under the ground. That's what it says. Chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, notice all these dates again, right? On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. That's water coming out of the ground. And the floodgates of the sky were opened, and it rained. The rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. The water came from both directions: it came from the sky above, from the earth beneath. That's what it says. Well, yeah, but that's crazy, right? I mean, come on, there's not that much water underground. We're, you're just making that up. Where'd all the water come from from under the ground? That's crazy. Well, really? First of all, it's what the Bible says. Okay? And God knows more about what's under the ground than you do. But secondly, have you read the news lately? There are all these, there are all these stories out on these science um, websites. It was a study first published in the journal Science. Okay, these are not what you'd call... Creation Museum people, right? (laughs) Okay, this is in the Huffington Post, not what you'd call fundamentalists. Here, I'm going to read something to you from a a website called newscientist.com. All right, some of you might have read this. Here's what it says. A reservoir of water, three times the volume of all the oceans... Has been discovered deep beneath the Earth's surface. These are people with nothing to prove, you understand. They're not making this up. The finding could help explain where Earth's seas come from. (laughs) Wow. It says the water is hidden inside a blue rock called Ringwoodite that lies 700 kilometers underneath, underground in the mantle, the layer of hot rock between Earth's surface and its core. The huge size of the reservoir throws new light on the origin of Earth's water. Some geologists think water arrived in comets as they struck the Earth. But the new discovery supports an alternate idea that the oceans gradually oozed out of the interior of the Earth. Quote, it's good evidence the Earth's water came from within, unquote, says Stephen Jacobson of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. The hidden water could also act as a buffer for the oceans on the surface, explaining why they have stayed the same size for millions of years. There you go. I mean, you know, they're not making that up. Don't be so sure things that used to seem crazy, right? Don't put your faith in science, but there it is. Water, lots and lots and lots and lots of water. Well, (laughs) fine, but wasn't the flood just a local catastrophe? Wasn't it just limited... To that little place where Noah was, doesn't that make more sense? No, actually, that doesn't make any sense. That is the craziest notion of all, actually. Why? Well, come on. If it was going to be a local flood, right, a local flood, this, this valley, this region, whatever, He knows about it a hundred years in advance. How about we just walk over there? (laughs) You can walk a long ways in a hundred years for crying out loud. (laughs) And why do you need to preserve all the animals if it's just the animals here that are going to die? And why do you need to preserve mankind if it's just these people here that are going to die? People die all the time. That's crazy. That is crazy. All right? The fact is, it wasn't local. It was global, just like the Bible says it was. The problem was a global problem. Remember chapter 6? The Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. It says in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. This is a global problem. And God's wrath was a global wrath. Chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man, not men, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man, to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 17, Behold, I even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. Chapter 7, God tells Noah in verse 4, For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. In verses 21 to 23, all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. Everything dies. And this is not an overreaction by the way on God's part, you understand? This is not an overreaction. This is what they deserved. And the water, it says, the water covered everything. Verses 17 and 20 in chapter 7. 17 to 20. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more. Upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens, all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. Global. Global. Oh, come on. Really? What about Mount Everest? Hmm. The water covered Mount Everest, really? Well, yes, actually. Fact is, everyone agrees that, the Mount, that Mount Everest used to be underwater. You understand that? Why? Well, there are clamshells on the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> Look it up. This is no secret. This is no, nothing weird. Of course Mount Everest used to be underwater. The only question is, under what circumstances did that happen? And the fact is that something as catastrophic and as cataclysmic as is recorded in the words of Scripture, right, where all the fountains of the great deep burst open, this is not water oozing, right, this is a violent cataclysm. That made Mount Everest. I don't know. I wasn't there, but God was. And this is what God says. Yeah, but modern science just, here's the bottom line, modern science just can't allow me to believe in such a fantastical thing. I just... I can't can't bring myself to it. There's too much evidence that says it didn't happen this way. Well, okay. How about this? Try this one on. Okay? This is from Exodus chapter 7. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh. And thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants And it became, what, a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. What do you do with that, Mr. Scientist? Well, how about this one? Exodus 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What do you do with that? Well, they just were walking through a marsh. Kind of swampy. Really? Is that what it says? Well, how about this one? Joshua chapter 10. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, Stand still at Gibeon and O moon in the valley of Ejelon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. What are you going to do with that? Well, No. What are you going to do with that? Does that fit your science? Well, here's another one. Jonah 117. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Oh, come on, you don't really believe that, do you? Do you? How about this one? 2 Kings chapter six. But as one was felling a beam, was cutting down a tree, the axe head fell into the water. Remember this, and he cried out and said, "Alas, my master, for it was borrowed." Then the man of God said, "Where did it fall?" And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. Here's another one. Numbers chapter 22. This is about Balaam. Balaam the prophet. He's riding on a donkey. But God was angry because Balaam was going and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path in the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? I mean, that is the kind of thing a donkey would say. (laughs) Then Balaam said to the donkey, (laughs) "What's going through his life, (laughs) because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey (laughs) on which you've ridden all of your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. <laughs> and then the, angel opened, or then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed all the way to the ground. If you have a problem with a donkey talking, then you have a problem with the angel of the Lord standing there in the first place. Which is easier to believe? This is the word of God. Or how about this? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Does that fit your science? Or how about this, 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. How does that work? Can you explain that? He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Or how about this? When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. How does that work? Explain this one. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing, as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. What about that one? Hmm? What about that one? Brothers and sisters, friends, will you believe the Bible or not? That's the question. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said the Scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. That means you either take all of it or you leave all of it. Either take all of it or leave all of it. It hangs together. Don't go picking and choosing what you think is plausible because none of the stuff I just read to you is plausible. Most of all, Jesus Christ, Son of God, taking on flesh, dying in your place, rising from the dead, forgiving your sins. That's crazy. That is much, much more crazy than believing the flood. Do you understand? Where are you going to stop once you start picking apart the word of God? Where are you going to stop when you, once you start chipping away at it? Where are you going to stop when you start doubting it? You won't. Biologos won't. They won't. They can't. This is the word of Almighty God. He does not, He cannot lie. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? How did Noah respond when God came to him? Wait a minute. This can't be happening. God doesn't talk to people. No. Um, What's this wrath stuff? My God wouldn't do such a thing. He's a loving God. No. Build an ark. Never heard of that. What's that? What do you mean all the animals? How will they fit? Is this how Noah responded? No. Chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. He He did all of it. Believed every word and did what he was told. He believed God and acted accordingly. Which is to say Noah was righteous in God's eyes because of his faith. You saw it at the beginning of chapter 7. God says to Noah, you alone have I seen to be righteous, right? Why? How is Noah different from anybody else? Did Noah earn the favor of God? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Did he earn the favor of the Lord by being righteous? No. No. He became righteous because he had the favor of the Lord, the grace of God. And he had the grace of God by faith. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence, in the fear of the Lord, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. That was the righteousness that God saw. It was the source of his obedience, was his faith in the grace of God. Where is your faith? Where's your reverence? In the modern, changing musings of science? Or in the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible? Who do you trust? Who do you fear? Do you fear being called a fundamentalist who believes a remarkable story? Listen. If you believe the cross and resurrection... you believe something much more amazing than a flood but if you give up the flood you know what's going to happen to you you'll give up the cross and resurrection you'll start you know picking on the thread you know pulling on the string unraveling the whole thing and what do you have left over after you've pulled on the thread, pulled on the yarn, unraveled the whole thing? What are you left with? Nothing. ball of string at your feet. If you won't believe that what he says about his wrath in the ancient world when he killed everyone but eight souls by water, what... How can you really believe that he will yet destroy this world with fire? Are you too sophisticated for that too? Then you will die in your sins. Because you don't have faith. And you don't have the fear of the Lord. Believe God. Believe God. You don't have to understand. You don't have don't have to see it. Believe God. Your soul depends on it. Let's pray. Dear Father. Have mercy on us, we pray. We are weak in our faith. We are afraid of men and the opinions of men. We don't want to be called fundamentalists or Bible thumpers or crazy Neanderthals. And so we fear men more than we fear you. We trust men more than we trust you. Have mercy on us, we pray. Open our eyes that we would see and believe what you've said. Thank you, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saves us from the wrath to come. I pray that all of us here, all of us, would trust him just as Noah trusted you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.